Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mystery Backroads. We're your hosts, Mike and Dan. And in this podcast, we will explore lesser known stories, legends, people, and places of the Buckeye State. So buckle in, here we go. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. I'm your host, Dan, and this is my partner, Mike. Mike, how are you? I'm doing good, Dan. How are you? I'm doing really good. Good. So today we have a tale of mystery and intrigue with Ohio ties, and this one stretches back all the way to World War II. So we're going back a little bit. We sure are. And this mystery ends with yet another mystery. A mystery within a mystery? A mystery within a mystery. And so it, the mysteries never end. The mysteries never end. It sounds a little bit like an episode of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> where are you? <laughs> where are you? So here's where we are. So this is going to be a military aviation mystery. And on November 9th in 1958 a British oil exploration team discovered the wreckage of what they thought was a World War II bomber in the middle of the Libyan desert. They radioed authorities back at Wheelis Air Base, but no attempt to investigate was ever made simply because there was no known record of any plane wrecks in that area. Unbeknownst to them, this discovery was the answer to a World War II aviation mystery. What happened to the lady be good. This plane was a U.S. B-24B Liberator, a heavy bomber from World War II. It was assigned to the 514th Bomber Squadron, part of the 376th U.S. Bomber Group stationed in Saluk Airfield in Libya. So stationed in the desert. It sure was. It sure was. And this was when Libya and North Africa had just been liberated by the Allies, and they needed this for a strategic location specifically to bomb Italy. So that's why everybody was there. Now, this crew had only been at the airfield for about a week, and this was their very first combat mission. Mm -hmm. The plane had a crew of nine, including three from Ohio. Second Lieutenant John Warfka, 26, was from Cleveland. Gunner Staff Sergeant Guy Shelley, 26, from Bel Air, who, believe it or not, was considered old for the position at 26 years old. Mm. 
And finally, Gunner Staff Sergeant Vernon Moore, 21 from New Boston, and they were all from Ohio. They had been assigned for a bombing run over Naples, Italy, and the plane had disappeared without a trace. Like all good stories, this one begins with, here's how it happened. The lady took off in formation with the other B-24 in waves. The plane was in the last group to take off and was among the last plane to even leave the base. So after they took off, they were supposed to marshal with the other planes and travel in a pack, but due to a wicked sandstorm and high winds, half of the planes were forced to return to the base. But the lady be good and three others pushed on toward their target. But try as they might, the Lady Be Good was not able to make it all the way to the intended target, and the crew was forced to return to the base. Additionally, they couldn't use the radio. They were instructed that the enemy could be listening in. They had to communicate on the planes by passing notes to each other, which made the whole thing all the more problematic. Try as they might, the Lady was not able to make it all the way to the intended target, and the crew was forced to return to the base. The other bombers also had to switch to their secondary targets due to poor weather over Italy. Bad weather on both the takeoff and the targets then. Oh yeah. I understand a real genuine concern was the engines ingesting sand when they were taking off during these sandstorms. These guys have guts. Brave guys, man. They sure did. I can't imagine. These young guys being forced to take on these kinds of responsibilities, they really had to be a a huge, huge undertaking. Um, I remember hearing a story that these guys would experience a phenomenon where after they had flown long distance at night, especially over water, they would describe a sensation where they think the aircraft is actually flying upside down and that their instruments had failed. Wow. It is. With the steady droning of the engines for hours and hours in their ears, they would become disoriented, especially on clear nights over the water, because they could see the reflection of the stars in the water. And they would somehow be convinced that they were actually upside down and their instruments were wrong. I wonder if this could have contributed to this story. It sounds like it it may have. So they're on their way back when they realize their navigation equipment isn't working. First Lieutenant William J. Hatton had reported to the airbase that the automatic direction finder, or the ADF, was inoperable, and he requested navigational assistance. This ADF could be used to zero in on a particular point or station, and that's what they were using. Um, That transmission would be the last anyone would ever hear from the crew again. So that probably wasn't unusual in World War II, do you think? Oh, I agree. You hear all kinds of crazy stories about missing planes or disappearing, and I think there's a lot of these what-happened kind of stories. It was assumed that they crashed into the Mediterranean Sea. So this story reminds me of the famous Bermuda Triangle story of the five uh, Navy Avengers that disappeared. Uh, They were Flight 19, and they disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle right after the war. I remember hearing about that, and wasn't that the case? I think I'll get this right. I, I'm not sure, and maybe you can help me. But wasn't the the pilots didn't want to go, the Bermuda Triangle? I think it was Flight 19. Right, correct, Flight 19. Yep. Where the leader wanted to continue on, and I think he was flying away from the coastline of yeah, Florida. Right. Do and I have that story yeah, right? Yeah, that's what they think he ended up doing, yeah. And 
they don't know what happened to him. Yeah, and, and it's kind of weird because, uh, real quick, I know we want to get too sidetracked here, but when the Challenger exploded in 86 or whatever year that was, mm-hmm. they actually found Avenger planes at, at the bottom of the ocean because they were looking for debris from the, from the spacecraft. Uh, but they turned out to be somebody, uh, another uh, group of planes that weren't them, but they thought they were. So for a minute, for a minute there, they thought they actually found them. You know, I, I really think it's interesting when, to your point, when, when they would go and research these stories, they would uncover other stories. And so one mystery gets answered and another one right. gets opened up. Yep. It's fascinating to learn about these things. Yep. So nobody at the airbase knew what happened. All they know is they, they heard this transmission from the Lady Be Good, and that was it. They never heard from them again, never saw them again. Everybody just broadly assumed that they had crashed into the Mediterranean Sea. They did send out a search and rescue team. Uh, They were dispatched, but they found no trace of the plane or the crew. And that was the official consensus. That is, until the British group looking for oil discovered the wreck. So after they made the discovery, a military search team was finally dispatched on May 1959, well after they actually initially saw the aircraft. And what they found absolutely shocked them. The plane had survived the crash remarkably intact. In fact, one engine still functioned, so had they stayed with the plane, they would have had radio contact. A machine gun still fired after being in the desert for 15 years. They had found a thermos full of tea, and that was still drinkable after 15 years. But there was no sign of the crew. After they had the ground search, they conducted an air search, and although there were signs that the crew had been there, including parachutes, markers, and boots, there was still no sign of the crew. After months of investigation, it was assumed that the desert had effectively swallowed the bodies up, in the shifting sands, and that wasn't unusual at the time either. However, shortly after that, BP oil workers would again make another discovery. This time, they discovered the remains of five crew members, including Lieutenant Hatton, Lieutenant Toner, Lieutenant Hayes, Sergeant Adams, and Sergeant Lamott. Among the most valuable artifacts recovered was the diary of Lieutenant Toner, which chronicled a harrowing ordeal of the crew. I would imagine that really helped put the pieces of the story together for him. It sure did. It sure did. And it was a, it was a rough description. This diary really helped them piece the puzzle together and understand what happened during that flight. So I just imagine the little time that this guy took each day to write in this diary and how important it became. So the story begins to take shape. When the lady flew over the airbase requesting guidance, signal flares were shot into the sky, but seemed to be missed by the crew. And that could have been due to these wicked sandstorms that were taking place. Additionally, the radar used at the time was very primitive, and despite the signal being sent from the ground station, the crew had no front-to-rear guidance. So in essence, they couldn't tell if they were getting closer or further away from the base. It was a dark night, and the weather was poor, and the crew simply didn't know where they were at. But indeed, they weren't anywhere near the Mediterranean. In fact, they were 450 miles south of the coastal airbase. It was assumed that the crew had gotten confused and thought they were flying over the ocean, so they just continued heading south, away from the ocean. 
but due to the poor weather and their crew and experience, they continued their heading. So, so did they ever figure it out? They sure did. They figured it out a few minutes later. And as they continued flying until the airplane ran out of fuel, they all parachuted. They jumped out and landed without injury, with the exception of John Warovka, whose parachute failed to open and he tragically lost his life. They all jumped out and were stunned to discover that as they were plunging through the darkness on that fateful night, they were landed on solid ground and not swimming in the water. The airplane would continue to glide for another 16 miles before skidding to a stop and breaking in half, and it would stay that way for another 15 years. The crew then found their way. They joined together using their flare guns to band together and then assess the situation. I can't imagine surviving that ordeal to be just put into another one. They were certainly brave men, no question about it. Well, now the crew was faced with yet another set of challenges. They're alone in the desert, it's dark, and they don't know what to do, and more importantly, they don't know which way to go. They didn't even attempt to return to the aircraft because they still assumed their base was only about 100 miles away, but in reality, it was over 400 miles away. Again, they're going to have to travel from the south to the north. And that's what they did. They decided to try to walk to the base, thinking that they would likely be rescued and route. And they only had a half of a canteen of water between them, the whole crew. And they would each drink a little capful of water each day. They began to march for nine days through the desert in a hellish test of human endurance. And they marched through the desert until five crew members were simply too weak to continue and... The other three continued to march on with one final crew member having walked over 100 miles away before perishing. So do you think they could have survived if they decided to uh, have returned to the plane? Certainly much longer than being stuck out in the desert. So the plane's radio still worked, so they would have had communication. There would have been shade there. There would have been something to drink. So most people think the outcome probably would have been much different. The remains of the airmen were eventually returned to the United States with the exception of Vernon Moore, whose body was never recovered. But again, the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Um, no, the story doesn't end there. In fact, the story became known as an example of human endurance. There were two films of the story made, both called Flight of the Phoenix. And an episode of the TV show The Twilight Zone was also based on this story, and this one was called King Nine Will Not Return. After the Lady Be Good was identified, some of the parts of the plane were returned to the United States for evaluation, including the engines, while the rest of the wreckage remained intact. In August 1994, the remains of the craft were recovered by a team led by Fidel Ali Muhammad, and it was taken to a Libyan military base in Tobruk for safekeeping. Over the years, pieces of the plane were stripped clean by souvenir hunters. Today, parts can be seen at the National Museum of the United States Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. They took a propeller, and that can be seen in front of the Village Hall in Lake Linden, the home of Robert Lamott. It should also be noted that some people think that this plane has a dark legacy attached with it. No, no, really, because this is going to remind me, this reminds me of another story that we can talk about in a few minutes, but let me, let me hear the, the dark legacy. Here's the dark legacy. 
after some parts were salvaged from the Lady Be Good and technically evaluated, they were reused in other planes belonging to the American military. However, some planes that had received these spare parts started to develop unexpected problems. A C-54, which had several transmitters from the Lady Be Good installed, had to start throwing cargo overboard to land safely because of propeller difficulties shortly after they used the parts. A C-47 that had received a radio from the Lady Be Good also crashed into the Mediterranean. A U.S. Army de Havilland Canada DHC-3 Otter had an armrest used from the bomber that crashed into the Gulf of Sidra. Only a few traces of that plane washed up on shore, and one of those parts was the armrest from the Lady Be Good. Okay, now this reminds me of all these things that happened after these parts were salvaged and put into other planes and, and such. Uh, the story of James Dean and his crashed Porsche. Oh, tell me more. After he crashed, they took some. They took the engine out, they took the suspension out and the transmission and they were put into other race cars um those two race cars one of them crashed and killed the driver and the other race car the guy got an accident but survived so it's like those parts were cursed just like you're explaining here with these these army parts also the porsche the shell of the porsche was displayed in car shows and they were bringing it down to florida for another car show and it just disappeared Wow. So nobody knows what happened to the, the shell of the Porsche that James Dean died in. It was on its way to Florida, and it just disappeared. Nobody knows where it's at. And I think he, it was a 959 Spider. I think. Yes. Wasn't that his, yes. his car? I think it was a, was a 9. Yeah, I think it was. And that was a Spider. Yeah, and I think I remember hearing that didn't whoever owned the shell, weren't they taking it around to different carnivals yeah. and fairs and car shows, That's and what, you could see it for a quarter? Yeah, I don't know if they were charging what they were charging, but it was in car shows, and like I said, they were bringing it down to Florida, and it just disappeared. And do you know if it's been ever seen or I, as far found as since? I know, it's, it's never been found since. So it's it's still missing. Um, another quick side story to that too was uh, the actor Alec Guinness, mm-hmm. uh, Star Wars. Yeah, obviously Obi Wan Kenobi. He was a friend of James Dean. He saw the car a week before James Dean died in it, and he told James Dean, "If you don't get rid of that car, you're going to be dead in a week." Wow. And he was dead in a week. Wow, what a prophecy. Yeah. Right. So, I'll be darned. What a story. Yeah. So sorry for the sidetrack there. No, that was really good. So this has been another edition of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. Thanks. That was a great story. Stay tuned for more. Hello. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more like it, head over to OhioMysteries.com. With over 500 podcasts to choose from, there's sure to be one that's going to keep you captivated. I'm Dan, and I can be found at YouTube at North Coast History and Haunts. My partner Mike can be found at Facebook at Too Late for Autographs.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.